When you climb a mountain, you don't do this in big moves. You will step after step after step. But we thought we were huge. We thought we had massive problems. And, you know, that was small compared to now. Most companies have this fallacy that there's a fixed amount of pie and that everyone's just got to fight for their own little segment of that pie. Whereas actually the reality is that everyone's success comes from growing that pie and expanding that out. Welcome to Zero to IPO, a podcast about growing a startup from a brilliant idea into a brilliant company and everything that happens next. I'm Joshua Davis, co-founder of Epic Magazine and a contributing editor at Wired. And I'm Frederick Karest, co-founder of Okta. So what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about how to keep things fresh. Okay. We're talking about how... I didn't know they were stale. They're getting complacent and you don't know it. How do you even know if you've gotten complacent? Because if you're complacent, you're kind of happy. You should assume... That's it. If you're feeling too happy, you have a problem, right? I think that's right. Well, we've got a, an amazing collection of guests on the show today who are going to talk to us about how to figure out what to do when you feel too happy, which is kind of a strange problem, right? <laughs> like, I mean, but that's the whole point of being an entrepreneur. Yeah. Is that when you're an entrepreneur, if you're starting to feel happy, that's a warning sign. Yeah. What a weird business. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the people that I know that are always super happy, I'm really worried for them. <laughs> They're not Bad doing things the... are right around the corner. Right. They're just about to get blindsided. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So today on the show, we've got Udacity Sebastian Thrun, Salesforce.com's Parker Harris, Melanie Perkins of Canva, and Andreessen Horowitz's Mark Andreessen. So who's first, Freddie? First up, Sebastian. I've actually known Sebastian for more than a decade now, and I've been amazed to see him go from being a Stanford professor, the head of the AI department, to the first guy on the ground at Google X and building up Google X, to now running Udacity, uh, a company devoted to helping people learn in all sorts of new ways. And Kitty Hawk. And Kitty Hawk, right. <laughs> With, like, I forgot. Flying cars. He forgot his last job. <laughs> and then he started flying cars. <laughs> Here's Sebastian. I just ran into a guy who climbed Everest about two weeks ago. And I asked him, how much time did you spend preparing and climbing? It was about six months. And then I asked him, how much time did you spend on the summit? And it was less than five minutes. I think, honestly, it's so much more fun climbing than resting. And so at Stanford, how did you know you reached the point when, when you, you were no longer climbing? What does that feel like? What does that look like? I, I joined Stanford in my early 30s and became a professor there. And uh, at some point realized that a lot of my colleagues were not just successful in academia, but also uh, venturing out into Silicon Valley. And I looked at this and felt it was a very different skill set than being a professor. I just felt I could do this forever or learn something new. And I'm the kind of person I just love learning new things. So I'm I'm at my best when I'm utterly inco incompetent and not, don't know what I'm doing because that's for me the chance to learn something new. Would you have done this if you didn't have Google X to go to? Do you think you would have just walked away into the unknown if there were, wasn't something more interesting? Probably not. Uh, at the time, Google X was already founded um, and uh, I was its founding um, vice president director. And I was really excited to take interesting intellectual things like, like Google Glass or Project Loon or, or self-driving cars a step further. Was it an easy or a hard decision? Oh, it was an easy decision. You didn't think twice about it? 
Not that I remember. <laughs> uh, you did it again when you walked away from Google X for something more interesting. To many people, the job at Google X is a dream come true. It is a dream come true, and I, I very much miss it. But in Google, I learned how to operate in a large corporation. And at times, I had over a 1,000 people in my organization. And we launched a whole bunch of stuff, actually, including Street View. But um, what I've never done was a startup captain. And I didn't even choose to take this job. The job chose me. In that, uh, in the midst of, of running Google X, I uh, was still teaching occasionally at Stanford and decided to take my uh, Stanford artificial intelligence class online free of charge. When I stack ranked uh, the online students with our Stanford students, the top 412 students were not at Stanford. And the single best Stanford student was ranked number 413. Was there a moment where you decided, you know what, I have to I have to leave Google X. Like, how did that happen? Well, I ran straight to Larry and said, hey, Larry, this has to be part of Google. <laughs> but the mission of Google X at the time was not to worry about software, just hardware. And education at the time wasn't as popular as it is today. So I ended up starting a company and got permission from a manager, Sergey Brin, to run the company uh, four days a week. And I remained one day a week at Google. The original idea, the original business model was to give away these classes for free? Yeah. How were you going to make money? Um, it's not good to have a business model where you give everything away for free, and that's it. Don't recommend it. That's, of not, course that, you can that's make, not a good idea. No, yeah. but the, the truth is, I, this wasn't carefully planned. Um, this happened uh, because I put the class online and I had my calling. And, and in, it just, in other words, it just kind of happened. Yeah, like it just happened. The idea bubbled up. And that's a great way to start a company because you have conviction. And that's also why you left Google X. It was just so compelling to you personally. It had to be done. Education has been the single most enabling thing in the entire history of this planet by a order of magnitude. So it can't be that we have the wrong mission. It's just the wrong solution. Did you think it was broken? I'm going to come back to this analogy of climbing a mountain. When you climb a mountain like Everest, which I've never done, you don't do this in big moves. You do it step after step after step after step. And occasionally, when this mountain has never been climbed before, like building Udacity, you go up the back up the wrong tree and you have to go back. And, 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 and to me, this is actually a great moment. Uh, even if I do something wrong, I can learn from it. And as long as I don't make the same mistake twice, I'll be stronger at the other end. What happens when you get buried in an avalanche? Uh, if you had an avalanche, then you start your next company. <laughs> but it never got that bad. My flaw was not that I didn't charge money. My flaw was that I worked with the wrong entity in the end, that I didn't understand the dynamics of how the machine of universities keeps itself from rapid innovation. So the initial business model was that there was no business model. So you had to kind of press reset and think of it in a different way. Yeah, it's so much fun in life to reset. Like, it's so much fun to build these things up and see if they work. And sometimes, uh, to use your mountain climbing analogy, you uh, hit an icy patch and you slide down, you got to start over. Yeah, and when you go into a fault summit, climbing down is painful because you have to undo a lot of things. You lose a lot of staff in that process. People who trusted you lose trust in you. That's just the way it is. But the good thing is, you've now 
climbed a mountain you shouldn't have climbed or a false summit and you'll just never do it again. And so how does that relate to Kitty Hawk? Well, in Kitty Hawk, uh, it's actually an older idea. I had a, a good friend of mine. His name is Larry. Um, we, we always thought about what's, how to revolutionize transport. And Larry and I had engaged in, um, in self-driving cars at his company, Google, and done this for a few years and made solid progress. We decided to give it a try. So in this case, did you have to step back from Udacity? Was, was that part of the deal here? And, and why did you do that? I didn't really step back. I, um, I found myself an uh, incredibly trusted brother. His name is uh, Vish, Vishal Makajani, who uh, served as my COO for quite a while. And I decided it's time for him to become CEO because every single decision he made was a great decision. And he and I, to the present day, sink on pretty much anything of relevance. And that freed up some of my time and made me clone. I love cloning myself. I think any successful entrepreneur should work on cloning themselves. If you can't clone yourself, then you can't grow. So that was a, happened about two and a half years ago. And I switched over to run Kitty Hawk. How do you keep yourself plugged into new ideas? How do you keep yourself in the mix of ideas so that you feel like you're constantly involved in things that are... Um, calling into question your own assumptions. Boy, I'm surrounded by many, many, many very smart people and, and people who are really think so far ahead of our times that I'm often embarrassed by how pedestrian my own thinking is. Um, and then if I go into my companies, um, I work with Alex Rudder, I with Fred Reed, people who are insanely accomplished and smart who come from a different angle. And a lot of good ideas come, come from the inside. Um, I would actually argue ideas is not the problem. <laughs> It's all execution. I uh, wrote an essay in Huffington Post, Kill the Meeting Culture. And freshly inspired by this, I went the next day and sent an email to everybody, no more meetings. Uh, At all? Like gone? No, no, meetings. I meant big meetings, scheduled meetings, meetings with meeting notes, the stuff that takes an hour. Um, And I said, instead, what's legal is if you have a problem, grab the two or three people you have to talk to, have a coffee break with them. And if it takes eight minutes to resolve it, do not spend a ninth minute on this because it's going to be counterproductive. And a whole bunch of stuff happened. First of all, the meeting rooms are empty, which I loved. Um, banning all meetings was not quite the best idea. There's a small <laughs> number of meetings that make sense. So they kind of crept back then. How, lo- how long before the meetings crept back in? Well, it's funny. Vish came to me and said, Sebastian, the company is completely discordant. <laughs> <laughs> I need at least one weekly meeting with my direct staff. <laughs> and then he recreated the meeting and excluded me. <laughs> but so basically, no meetings for Sebastian. Freddie, when was the last time you met somebody who climbed Everest? Is that what, like, do you hang out? Is that your circle? That's not my circle. Not your circle? No, that's not my circle. (laughs) But the point of this idea that you spend months and months and months training for something only to achieve it and then hang out for a few minutes and head back down. I I don't know. I I struggle with this because on the one hand, you kind of want to luxuriate in your successes, but I don't think that's the way the world really works. Not only that, I don't think that's the way real entrepreneurs are wired. I think they're wired for the next thing. You're saying I'm not a real entrepreneur because I want to luxuriate in my successes? I think they're focused on the next thing. (laughs) I think it's about, okay, let's go plant a flag on that tall mountain because no one's done it. We did that. Where's the next big mountain? Yeah. What's the next big thing we're going to do? The challenge is you got to kind of be honest with yourself about 
hey, have I gotten too comfortable? And if so, should I either figure out a way of reinventing the work or finding a new challenge uh, on the job or with the company? Or should I go do something else? Yeah. Go race the sailboat if that's what you want to do. Yeah, it doesn't make you a bad person. Let's talk about our next guest, Freddie, Parker Harris uh, from Salesforce.com, one of the co-founders. When we talk about keeping it fresh, I mean, I think Parker Harris is a great example of how you can do that over 20 years at the same company you're building. This is a guy who could very easily go sail around the Caribbean if he wanted to, but he is showing up every day at Salesforce after however many years. 19, 20 years? 19, 20 years. And has constantly evolved his role at the company, which is fascinating. In fact, just last year in 2018, he joined the board of directors of Salesforce. Which was the first time? Which is the first time he hadn't been on the board. For 19 years, in year 19, he was like, hey, now I want to do the next thing. Let's, let's, Let's do some board work. 20 years on, I mean, how are you still staying personally motivated, engaged, excited. I get it. There's a quarterly cadence. There's a three releases a year. There's a monthly rhythm. Yeah. But like, how are you still staying so excited and motivated every single day? What's the... I think you have to reinvent yourself along the way. I'm a very different person and different role than uh, when I started. So I was a developer when we started. I ran development. Then I, you know, ran more than development and... uh, uh, and, you know, now, really the last, I'd say, three years, I've, I made another big shift where I've moved to, uh, and I used to just have co-founders the title because I was like, whatever. But then I thought maybe I should tell all these new people what I do in case they come in and think I'm doing nothing. Uh, really pivoted to be CTO to focus on architecture because um, we have a lot of people who have learned to run the machine, learned to be tactile, learned to be operational. As I said, we're trying to add strategy a little bit, a little bit longer-term thinking. So I'm trying to do that um, for all the acquisitions we've acquired, all the data centers we have, that we keep making what we have better. And I've got clearly the tenure and and the title helps too, uh, to then work across a large swath of groups and I can work on getting alignment across all these teams where we're building common, you know, we're building workflow a million different times, different UI, different data centers. How do I bring all that together? And it's this massive problem, multi-year problem, um, where I can have an impact in the company. And so I think, I think you, all, you, you have to look to all continue to reinvent yourself. And at the end of the day, do you feel like you're having an impact because if you're having an impact, that's rewarding. And usually you're rewarded for impact. And I'm very well rewarded. I always have been and feel very lucky. Um, but at, you know, at the end of the day, you're, you're working and you're in this office for a long time and with these people. And if you do the same thing forever and you hold on to that and you don't accept change, you're going to get to be very unhappy. And, and then you probably would leave and do something else, you know, and you know, join boards or retire. Um, I don't want to stop working and I think I have a pretty, pretty cool job. I have one last question. This switch from the waterfall development cycle to an agile cycle. Yeah. That was a big decision. The development cycle had slowed down. Yeah. It, you had to shut the team down. Was it hard to make that decision? 
No, it was really easy. So we were maybe 130 people. We were teeny, if you think about it, yeah. uh, in engineering. In product engineering, right? We yeah. were less than 200 people. Yeah. But we thought we were huge. We thought we had massive problems. And, you know, that was small compared to now. When I think back of it, it's kind of funny to think about. And uh, we were waterfalling, so everyone was blaming the last people in the line, which was quality assurance that, oh, it's your fault for being, you know, we're, we're having these problems. And, and people were getting very angry with each other. And really, there was some bad behavior that, you know, it was just, it was not good. And there were people who were threatening to quit. Like I came here to the cloud to actually do something and get it out in the, in the world. And I'm just writing specs or I'm just writing software that's not getting released. And uh, we started by uh, talking to our tech advisory board. So Maynard Webb, who from eBay, but now on, uh, on our board. Um, Len Reedy, also eBay, Adam Bosworth and... At eBay, they had this idea of the train model that, oh, well, we just ship everything every two weeks, massive branching and have tons of automation and it's just awesome. So I was like, sweet, that looks great. That's what I want to do. Train model, let's do it. Shinkansen is what I called it, the train model. And uh, cooked it up, brought it back. And, um, and basically the team just crapped all over. Like, no way, never going to do that. That's not going to work here. Our model is different, or our, you know, domain of of tech is different. It's more intertwined. It's a platform. I think a lot of that was true. You know, we're not a website of separate little properties that is more separable, where you don't have code stepping on each other. So, two engineers uh, uh, came to me and uh, said, "We have this this great idea. We're gonna. Um, it's called Agile and." They're like, okay, tell me about it. And I'm like, okay, that's great. And they said, um, we we have to go carefully though, because we don't want to break anything. We're just gonna, you know, try it out in a few groups. And I said, no, you know, everything's totally messed up right now. Uh, and um, so what we did was, I said, I don't care if we ship nothing, but we will release on this date. And everyone's like, whoa. But release the agile model. No, we release the, the, next, the next release. The next rev of software. The next rev of software happened on this date, time boxed. But then the product manager's like, well, we don't have enough time uh, to, to get our specs done. And the engineer's like, well, then don't put that into the software. We're going to release it. So it was a very different way of thinking. I just, that's the only thing I held constant. I said, if nothing happens, it's fine. But that's when we'll push the button and code will go. And it, it, it was a good thing because it forced a what was then a big group of 120 people to really shift on a dime and um, and work hard and it rallied everyone. It was a very it was a simple and clear message to the whole team, uh, and it was awesome. And were you nervous about it at the time, or were you just like everything's so messed up that it can't be worse? Yeah, it's a lot. It's like you know what could happen if we don't release some software. What's the big deal? <laughs> nothing got released. <laughs> if, if the big deal, yeah. worst case, nothing happens. Right. And uh, and I was taking a long view. It's like, okay, maybe we'll have some people upset in the near term, but the customers, but um, I got a lot more issues if they start losing great people or if we can't actually get innovation out. And 
yeah, so that was a good, that was a good moment. I love this, this thing that Parker says about how you have to reinvent yourself along the way, but, but particularly, I mean, you've heard that, but what I particularly like about it is that he, he says that he's a very different person now. It's the point of life, right? You don't want to just like suddenly reach maturity and that's it, right? Really? What is the point of life? <laughs> I think we need a different podcast. We're, we're, we're going to get into that right now. That's yeah. what we're going to talk about. Okay. That's what the show is about. That's what this episode is about. It's about the point of life. Well, no, it's about keeping it fresh. Well, but that's the point. Well, but the point is the point of life. Is the point of life to keep it fresh? Yes, right. You think so? Yes, because it's not to find happiness. You believe this whole journey thing? Yes. How do you find happiness? You find happiness by constantly challenging yourself and growing. It's about purpose. It is about purpose, right? I agree. And sometimes that purpose, you know, drives you to suffer because you're trying to achieve something. As you get through those moments, as we've talked about on the show, you come out on the other side stronger, better, whatever the case is. I mean, when I think about it, we talk about it at Okta all the time. You know, in a lot of situations, people are interviewing for their job basically every year because every year their job is so different and so new and pushes them to a level they've never been to before that, you know, it might be the case that some year down the road, you know, the board of directors turns to me and says, Frederick, you've maxed out. Like, you are no longer going to be the right COO for the next phase of the company. I thought they already said that to you like five years ago. <laughs> multiple times. I'm just saying the next time they're going to say it. Yeah. And, and uh, then you're going to have to reinvent yourself. You got to reinvent yourself. And I think that's been the case for Parker. You just heard that. Frankly, I faced this at Okta. And, uh, you know, my job today at 1,500 people is very different than my job was at two people. Doesn't It's not better or worse. It's just different. And it's new. And so I have to grow and I have to understand new things all the time. And that's what keeps it fresh. So, Freddie, our next guest has done something uh, that seems to me pretty innovative. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there are other I companies. I have never heard of it before. So, we're talking about Melanie Perkins of the company Canva. She's broken her company into a collection of units or groups that all function semi-autonomously, I think. I've never heard of that. Well, and do you know what she calls them? Each of these units? Pods. No. Startups. She calls them startups. Here's Melanie. You said something earlier also about how you want to say no to red tape. And this is something we've talked to a lot of people about, which is how can a company stay true to its values as it, as it scales? When you're adding 10, 20 people a week, just the growth constraints, like how do you think about balancing that startup spirit with the need for more organization, for more communication that's planned, for more... Um, educational programs to keep your teams growing. How, how do you think about that? Balance? What else breaks? I think that as we have grown, there's been continuously decisions like do the old bureaucratic way um, or do the way that we want. And we're continuously making decisions and they're hard. It's, it's actually way easier just to go and do like what everyone else does. And it's way harder to um, choose to do what feels authentic to our company. Um, but what we're actually doing right now is we're splitting up into 17 um, startups. So we've got these groups of teams and we're calling them startups. And we're actually about to have over the next month like an offsite day for each of those groups where we're going to do all sorts of things from media training to like creating a startup pitch deck to really like, you know, talking about the, the vision and the future for each of those groups. And so I think like, you know, that could be, if, you know, that's sort of the path of, 
you know, not really that normally trodden versus like, let's put in lots of red tape and bureaucracy and, you know, silly titles and things like that. And so I think that the, that, that along the path is just these continuous decisions that need to be made and one is one way and one is the other. And I think that, you know, this happened so many times over the last few years and I predict it will only happen more frequently as we go forth. It's easier to not do that. It's easier just to say, okay, well, like, you know, so-and-so must has done it before. They're at X number of people. Let's just do that because that seems easier. But you can't just transplant someone else's culture and put it in your company and then, you know, get up and be able to say authentically that's why you did it. I think we've always tried to do and make decisions that are based on what we th think is right um, for our culture and our values and our people. Um, that doesn't mean, but we also have this other concept of minimal viable structure. And so the, the concept of minimal viable structure is you don't put in structure prematurely. We put in structure only when it's really needed to actually aid something, to help achieve a goal. And so I think that if we use that as our guiding principle forever, that will be really helpful for Canva going forward. But aren't you creating a whole bunch of overhead for yourself by creating 17 new 25-person startups inside your company? Oh, no, it's way better. So the idea is that rather than me having to hold the entire vision and actually to the detail in my head, the idea is that the actual startup, that, that group, becomes the owner of that vision and that pitch deck going forward. And so every time they have a new person start, then they get to show that pitch deck to their, to their people to, that, are, that are joining their team. And it really helps to ensure that like, rather than me having to be like the person that's going and figuring out the chess piece and how to move everything forward, that group starts to own that. Um, and I think that if we want to build a company with thousands of people, which we certainly do, that it's really important that it's not just like the typical hierarchy where only a few people know what's going on. It's why we do things like season opener as well, is to embed that strategy and that context as deeply as we can within the company. I think that's what's so important is if, if you have a traditional company where you've only got so many people that know what's going on, it kind of means that you can't really build strong foundations for that city. If we want to build a city, we've got to build the people that can actually support that. How did you decide on 17? I mean, what is that a number? Is that split up by functional group? I mean, that frankly, it's something I've never heard of. So how did you, I understand a little bit of the idea that as you just explained, it makes a ton of sense, but like, how do you come up with the details? I mean, who are the set, what are the 17 groups? Who are the leaders? How do you assign that? Is there, or is it just like, you know, uh, Tony Shea from Zappos used to say, like, there's no management at all. I mean, wh wh where do you fit somewhere in there? I think somewhere in the middle. So we have people who, for example, own a lot of, you know, code in, in a group and they'll be a tech leader. And we have people who are, you know, really strong PMs and they'll be helping to create that pitch deck. But we're sort of in this, this, this you know, early stage of it at the moment. But really having the whole team own the goal, I think, is what's so critical. And so, like, with, the, with our season opener, getting the whole team to really buy into that goal. And then when we celebrate, we celebrate the whole team's success. Um, I think that the, they're the really critical parts of social dynamics like that people that a lot of companies just get frankly quite wrong imagine pie, pie most companies have this fallacy that there's a fixed amount of pie and that everyone's just got to fight for their own little segment of that pie whereas actually the reality is that at a startup that's growing rapidly is everyone's success comes from growing that pie and expanding that out um, and so I think it's really important that we embed that mentality into the company that it's not about trying to like you know elbow someone or nudge someone to get a little bit more of their pie it's about how we can grow that for the whole company and I think having the f strong focus on goals and the strong focus on like actually doing good for our customers I think helps to, to alleviate alleviate that so other other things that were broken that you noticed 
uh, as the company grew? I think literally every single thing has had to change. I remember when we were um, really small, we actually had our front enders sitting on one side of the desk. We had our back enders sitting on another side of the desk. And then we had everyone else sitting on another desk. Um, and then we realized like, you know, to actually achieve things, we needed to have front enders and back enders on a team. Um, and then that's sort of that continuous like reorganization to make sure that everyone is assembled towards hitting goals has been just a constant priority. So it's just a, a continuous work in progress. Like, and everyone needs to have that growth mindset or that, that desire to continuously grow and learn. And I think that's something that we hire for and something that we just need to bake into our culture is that nothing stays the same. You know, everything from the way we do our you know, customer happiness to the way we do every team, to the way we do goal setting. Even our season openers have been something that have continuously changed and transformed over the years. Because we used to do on Fridays at lunchtime, or just after lunch, we used to get everyone to stand up with their and show what they've been working on for the week. Um, and then we had 40 people and that would take way too long. And then we had to move it into teams and then each team would say what they've been working on. And then that was too long. And now we have this one day, once a quarter um, for our season opener where everyone gets up and um, talks about their goals. And that will just need to keep continuously morph as we go. Do you miss those so you old talk. days? Do you miss those early days? I think that's literally why we're getting them back. <laughs> so I'm so excited to, like, I, I love the idea that everyone has that context and that um, that clarity about what's going on and is able to contribute more than just their, their particular skill set. They're able to really contribute towards that vision. And so I think with the this concept of doubling down on our, our group and startup structure, I really hope to be, um, to be doubling down on that, getting that back too. But I, I think that it, at every single stage of the journey, it's brought different challenges. And I, I like challenges. So I think that if the, they had stayed the same, I'd be kind of bored. Well, I think what's interesting here, Josh, is that Melanie's approach to growing her organization is actually taking it kind of in modular functions and saying, the right size is this startup. Now I'm just going to do 17 of them. It reminds me of Sebastian Younger's idea of the tribe and and the fact that we don't work in thousand person groups. Yeah, we work right. in like 20 person groups. And so Melanie's approach here is to replicate this idea of small little groups throughout a company. Uh, and perhaps that's a way of allowing people to more nimbly adapt and change and tackle challenges uh, and at the end of the day, keep it fresh. And reinvent yourself as you go, right? So how are you going to do that? You have some awesome little group. It's a, it's a great module. And then you actually want many of these modules. It's a way of reinventing yourself. And our next guest, Josh, is going to talk not only about reinventing your company as you grow, but actually reinventing an entire industry. So here's Mark Andreessen of Andreessen Horowitz talking actually about his investment in Okta and how that got going. Here's Mark. It was one of your early investments when you started Andreessen Horowitz. Yep, that's right. One of the first ones. In fact, I think it was right around the corner that we had our first meeting. Yeah. Yep. And so how did you see the, how did, how did you make that call? You just started your venture fund. You were, you know, you were seeing five or 10, this is now 10 years after the first. How did you make that call? Two guys came in. We couldn't even do a PowerPoint. Our PowerPoints were terrible. In fact, I think your, one of your recommendations was you guys should just tell a story. Stop showing the PowerPoint because neither you can draw. That's like literally <laughs> what we heard in the first meeting, um, which Don't was great. Draw. And then yeah. we started yeah, one of your, drawing. It's not one of your core competencies. I mean, how, how did, what, what, what was the mix? 
So, uh, so I would say, so it was a couple of things. So one was, look, we, we had a very keen understanding of the, of the nature of the problem and the market size. Like we, we knew that we knew that everybody would need something like this and market size is like hugely important uh, for, for, for venture capital. Um, we, and then we, so that was one, that was maybe the obvious one. And then we were, we were big believers. This was a fundamental architecture shift. Like basically the world was actually going to go cloud. And this was at a time when that, there was a lot of skepticism around that. And, that and that why was, did you think that? It was just, it, I, I mean, it just seems so obvious. It was just like, well, you started the first cloud company, first of all, 20 years ago. So we should talk <laughs> we about had, that. We had, some, anyway. we had some history. It was just like, well, we knew what it was actually like. So, all, you know, the entire history of kind of business computing up to the up to the cloud was basically companies trying to run stuff themselves. And like, we just knew what a catastrophe that was. We knew, it's just, it's been a complete disaster, the whole history of the industry. Like the whole history of the industry is like half of all systems implementations fail. Like there's no other industry that would ever get away with that other than enterprise software, kind of pre-cloud. All the projects were over budget. They would all take too long. Then everything, you get it working, it would be obsolete, right? And you're Either they're running an obsolete system, or, or you'd have to um, you'd have to start over from, from scratch. Users always hated the products; nothing ever worked together. Things were crashing all the time, and then and then the security. Actually, the kicker to the whole thing was security, which is like everybody was getting penetrated by hackers all the time because nobody knew how to run security for themselves. And and then this is where this is where we really kind of got on the cloud train. Was it's like, well, the big argument against the cloud was security. You know, why would you put your data in the cloud where hackers can get at? Everybody it? can get it. Everybody can get it. And we were like, no, 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 no. It's the other way around. They're already getting it. They're already getting it. Right. You're already you're already host. And so we, we just, we, we believed early that, it, that the market was going to flip and that people were basically going to reach the conclusion. They were going to do a 180 and they were basically going to realize that going to the cloud was the only way to get security uh, for most organizations, which is, I think, what, what, what's happened. And so, and then, and then logically we know, okay, they're going to do that. That's, then there's your architecture change. And then we also knew, look, cloud applications are just easier to adopt, right? And so um, we knew that customer sat was going to be far higher on, on these, uh, on these applications. And then we knew people would use a lot more of them. And then, and then basically we projected forward from that that basically said, well, people then are going to use, not only are they going to use more cloud apps than they were going to use old apps, they were going to use like 10 times more or a hundred times more or a thousand times more. And so the vast majority of the apps they would run would be in the cloud, right? Which again, architecture change is what's going to happen there. And so like the whole world is basically going to just, you know, pivot. And at that point, what year is this? 2009, 2010? 2009, 2010. Had you been hearing ideas like this, you know, transition to the cloud? Was this you know, were you hearing a bunch of them? Well, this is, there was a backstory. I mean, honestly, there was a backstory, which is like we had, we had pushed a lot of this ourselves in the nineties. Um, you know, there was a lot of web, web, web applications, cloud applications. Like we, we, we push hard on that ourselves. And then there was a whole wave of the first wave of SaaS, right. Was actually in the late nineties, early two thousands. This goes back to what we were talking about earlier, yeah. where everything old is new again. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was a whole breed of like cloud application. There was, uh, it was called ASP, ASP. application right. service providers yep. in the, in the, in the mid to late nineties. And then, and then, you know, look, Salesforce, Corio, Corio, yeah, yeah, Corio. Yeah. And then, um, uh, you know, Salesforce started in 99 and like he, he, he was right. Like he got that right. Um, and then, um, and then you, and you could see, like, you could just see like that was working. And so if that was going to work, then a bunch of the others were going to work. And then we did, right. We did loud cloud, our own cloud company at the time. And we, so we got a, kind of a real lens on that. So we just kind of, you know, just kind of kept seeing the pattern. So the, the bet was kind of, you know, it was, a, so we, we thought the market bet was obvious. There was, we thought the, the technology bet was obvious. There was always the timing question, but like we basically, we, when we think we see it, we just go in. And we're wrong on timing a lot. Because like, it could be, maybe it's not going to hit in five years. Maybe it's going to hit in 10 years. And That's exactly right. And then, and then that basically in our business is the same as being wrong because these companies can't go 10 years without success, right? And so, but we'll take that. That's a risk we're comfortable taking. Like, we, th like that's almost like the best way to fail in, in our business. Which you, is were, like, you were right, but. Fair enough. Because we get, we, we, especially we in our business, we get the chance to try again, right? We, we can, we, you know, we can back another company late. You know, worst case, we can back another company later maybe get it right the second time. 
Yeah, I think what Mark's talking about is when you are fortunate enough to have seen a whole generation of high technology in this case, and you also have the wherewithal to take a step back and understand what you're seeing and what's gonna happen, you can really participate in these massive technology and industry changes and really revolutions. That's what he's talking about. So we're not just talking about keeping it fresh on the personal level or even the company level. We're talking here the industry level. We're talking about a massive transformation inside industries where they are keeping it fresh. And if you can tap into that on both of these levels, the personal, the, the, the corporate level, and, uh, and all of these levels on, on the industry level, that's when you get something magical. This has been another fascinating episode of Zero to IPO, a podcast about how successful entrepreneurs build successful companies. Special thanks today to our guests, Sebastian Thrun, Parker Harris, Melanie Perkins, and Mark Andreessen for taking time out of their busy schedules to speak with us and to the Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship for collaborating with Okta to bring this podcast to life. If you like what you've heard and you want to know more, Check out exclusive in-depth stories from each episode on fastcompany.com. And to hear the next step in taking a company from zero to IPO, make sure to subscribe and give us a good rating on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Joshua Davis. And I'm Frederick Harris. And we hope you'll tune in for our next episode. Hitting the Clutch Shots. Featuring Golden State Warriors All-Star Andre Iguodala. I feel like I shoot better when it really means something. Like, because that's when you really lock in.